Um, I got to tell you, I don't, I have this leather binder that I have preached from from 20 years, and it's the first time I can remember preaching without it, so I just want you to know I'm flying without a net up here. This feels very insecure. So, um, and two weeks ago, a little bit of business to take care of. Two weeks ago, I shared with you an experience that I had with Jimmy John's. Remember that? I don't know if all of you heard that, but I basically went into Jimmy John's, and I did not handle a res a, an interaction with one of the staff very well. So I shared that as an illustration. I actually thought that my honest sharing was enough. I thought my confession was enough, but that was not enough for you. Many of you wrote me and said, did you go back? <laughs> yeah, right. So you guys actually wanted me to live what I was preaching when it says, leave your spiritual duties, go back and be reconciled. So way to go, team. You guys are amazing. So I went back. Yeah. I went back. <laughs> And I walked into Jimmy John's this past, about four or five days ago, and I walked into Jimmy John's and I didn't see the guy. And so I thought, great, I'm off the hook. And so I ordered my Vito Little John, like I did last time, and I ordered and I started to walk out, and then out came a man from a break and he was putting on his apron, dressed very differently, his hair was different, didn't have a hat on, but I'm pretty sure it was him. But I wasn't sure of him. And you know how Jimmy John's has the two sides of the counters. They make sandwiches on both sides. So I'm standing on one counter, and he walks over to where they're doing the drive-through. So it's farther. And all of a sudden, there's nobody else ordering. And all the staff is looking at me because I'm just moving, and it's getting weird. And finally, the manager looks at me and says, is there something else you need? And I actually said, oh, I'm not sure yet. And I walked around the other side of the counter. And they were getting weirded out. It was getting really awkward. And finally, I looked and I said, I need to talk to him. And he's like, do you know him? And the guy turned from the window and actually looked at me and he goes, me? And he kind of like said, I'm working. In my mind, I said, well, yeah, this time you are. Last time you are. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. And so I asked him to come over, and he very timidly walked over, was not excited about this, and I just said, hey, I wanted to say to you, I had an exchange with you about two weeks ago that I did not handle well. I was not patient with you. I did not give you any grace, and I just wanted to say, God loves you, and I needed to come in here and ask your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And he looked at me, and he said, dude, we're good. <laughs> And then he smiled, a big smile. I didn't see any smiles from this guy last time I was in there. He smiled. I did not feel like it was the appropriate time for me across the counter to chart the bridge illustration or share the four spiritual laws. But I want to say to you, my encounter with Jesus started with a man on the side of the road who showed me contentment and never said a word about Jesus. I'm believing that that man's journey just started with that smile. So we're not responsible for results just doing what Jesus tells us, right? So today, we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Andrew and I have talked a lot during this series as he and I have prepared for these messages. And man, we don't know what's going on with you guys, but we're getting rocked. I can tell you honestly, not one of these messages has ended up turning out the way we thought they were going to when we set up this series. So we're believing that God is moving among us and sharing with his people. Through the series on Christian living, we are learning from Jesus how to reorient from a self-centered lifestyle into a kingdom-centered lifestyle. This is our third week in section number two, which we have titled Loving God and Love and Your Neighbor. Loving God and Your Neighbor, and this week's title is Loving God and Your Neighbor, Truth. So would you now stand with me, please, as we read the word together. John chapter five, 
verses 33 through 37. Matthew, uh, again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven or it, or for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Do not let your statement, but let your statement be yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Go ahead and let's be seated. While you're seated, I'm just going to say a quick prayer because I want to ask, Lord, what just happened in the worship set was absolutely stunning and beautiful. You were lifted up. You were honored. And I want to ask that as we share in your word, that you will feel equally honored and blessed. I know you created time. And so I've always believed that when we worship you like that, you heard it on the cross and that we could actually bless you. And I pray that these words, your words, as we teach them, would equally bless you and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Andrew shared a fantastic illustration about the iceberg. Jesus addresses what is above the water, what is seen in order to address the true issues that lie below the waterline and what can't be seen. He addresses what is seen, our actions, in order to change what can't be seen, our hearts. So he speaks to our actions. The target is below the surface. The target is our hearts. Our temptation is to steer around these deep teachings, to rationalize, contextualize, logicize, which may be a word made up, I don't know, (laughs) until we make it realistic or comfortable enough to fit into our preconceptions for what our lives ought to be. But like Andrew said, instead, we need to choose not to steer around these truths and instead dive deeper in them with Jesus. So we are going to first start this morning by walking through what Jesus addresses in the visible, what is visible, and then we're going to take a deep dive into what is invisible because God is in the depths, not in the seen but in the unseen, not in the logic of man, but in the mysteries of God. And that's where we're headed. So Jesus begins Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. The language of false vows means exactly what it sounds. We are not to say something and not fulfill it. When we say we're going to do something, we need to do it. This is actually not an explicit or exact quote from any Old Testament law. It's actually a compilation, kind of a principle that is taken from many of the scriptures through the Old Testament law. Just an example, this would be Leviticus 19, 11 through 12, where it says, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So after establishing the principle in the Old Testament, Jesus says that now familiar phrase. It's been every week. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Now, we've already spent a lot of time establishing that Jesus never intended and his intention was never and he was not correcting the Old Testament. 
Just hang on to this. Jesus was completing it. He was putting the heart back into something that the law could never contain on its own. But he's never correcting it. He's always completing it. And this is where the iceberg illustration, we can get sidetracked in this because there is actually a verse in Deuteronomy that says we are to swear by the name of God. So all of a sudden, this is where we can, remember we talk about getting sidetracked and we can go, oh gosh, is that a conflict in scripture because we got this and then Jesus says this. And if we do that, this is where Andrew's iceberg illustration works so well. If we get stuck there, we get stuck in the surface. We dive deeper into the scriptures and there's always the revelation and there's always clarity. Don't get stuck in the minutia, okay? So here again, this is where the iceberg illustration fits and we're gonna dive deeper. So Jesus continues and says, but I say to you, make no oath. And this is where the clarity begins to come. As he follows up, after he says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make any oath by your head, for you cannot change one hair, white or black. No oaths, vows by heaven, no promises by earth, don't promise by Jerusalem, don't promise by your head. What the heck is he talking about? I mean, what is he talking about? That's not really what we do. But what Jesus is talking about, what he is referring to, is what was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah, and I'm not a scholar, so I don't want to pretend to be, but I want to give a brief description of this. After Torah, the rabbis started to create groups of writings that were interpretations, clarifications, addendums, and kind of expansions of what was in the Torah. This was called the Mishnah. It became vast and actually got fully recorded in about the, it doesn't matter. Anyway, it was big, okay? And it became a distraction. And, and, and it, Jesus is, is obviously referring to the Mishnah here when he t- says these things. So when he says, for instance, one of the principles in the Mishnah was that if you gave an oath by Jerusalem, it was binding, But if you gave an oath toward Jerusalem, it didn't mean anything. And Jesus is aiming at this kind of teaching. Now, this may date me, but when I was a kid growing up in my neighborhood, we had a rule. If I made a promise standing on a crack, I didn't have to keep that promise. And that's... That's what the rabbis were doing. They're providing all of us a bunch of cracks to stand on so that we don't have to keep our word. And Jesus wants none of it. He's aiming at this whole mission and said, ho, ho, ho. Don't you bring heaven into this on whether or not you keep your promise or not. Heaven is God's throne, not your plaything. And don't you bring the earth into it. That's God's footstool. And don't be playing around with Jerusalem. That's the city of the king. And by the way, your own head, you can't do anything about that either. Not one hair, not white, not black. So don't be bringing that into it either. That's all God too. Jesus is emphatic. You are adding clauses, quid pro quos, and escape clauses all through your promises. And he's just really clear. Knock it off. Knock it off. And Jesus ends with a very direct and strong and simple. Let your statement be yes, yes, 
or no, no, anything beyond that is of evil. The brilliance of Jesus' ability, and again, I love Andrew's iceberg statement. This is where Jesus is an expert. The brilliance of Jesus' ability to take really complex, really deep things and simplify it and bring it down to what I call take all this hay and bring it down to where the sheep can eat it is amazing. Amazing. And one of my favorites, you got to look at this, when he's asked and challenged, thinking it's going to trip him up, and the Pharisees say, hey, by the way, what are the best rules? What's the best commandments? What's the best laws? Thinking it's going to last, probably this is going to take a lecture that sends seven days. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the laws and all the prophets. Do you know what he has just done? He has taken and summarized the entire Old Testament, 929 chapters, 23,214 verses, and somewhere in the area of 63,000 words, and boiled it down to just 33 words. That's Jesus. Andrew said Jesus was an expert in icebergs, and that's what Jesus did his whole life and all his teaching, just takes what will mislead us and he and confuse us and what has deceived us, and he makes it simple. Jesus takes what we have so confused and muddled up and trapped in our heads and simplifies it so that we can move it to our hearts. That's what he's aiming for, our hearts. This is what he does in the final statement of verse 37 of our text today. He takes an entire section of the Mishnah that was devoted to all these escape clauses, all of these excuses, all of these, an entire section of the Mishnah and boils it down to 16 words. But your statement, let your statement be yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. And in the simplicity, we must not miss the strength of this command. It is simple. It is strong. Yes, yes, no, no. The double, it's meaningful. If you look at the rest of scriptures and watch Jesus when he says, truly, truly, what follows is always really critical. I think this yes, yes, and no, no is meant to be very strong. No game playing, no exit clause, and no disclaimers. When you say, yes, I will do that, do it. When you say, I will not do that, then don't. Say what you mean and mean what you say. As a disciple of Jesus, when I make a statement or a promise to someone, they should be able to look at me and say, I don't need to ask Steve a bunch of qualifying questions to find out if he's hiding something. He's telling me the truth. And when he says he'll do it, then he's going to do it. That's who are we, we are supposed to be as followers of Jesus. Yes, yes. No, no, and not hiding a bunch of stuff that everybody's got to wonder whether I asked the right question so that when I leave, did I understand him? If we ever wonder how serious Jesus is about these commands, we should visit Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is where we see the woe to you section. And if there's anything you don't want to have Jesus start a sentence aimed at you for, it is with starting with this, woe to you. And many of the woe to you statements are aimed at lying, deception, and misleading people. 
And here again, yeah. Here again, we see the distraction of the Corey Ten Boom question that I mentioned two weeks ago. I, I, I already covered it, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but real briefly, Corey Tendrum hid Jews from the Nazis, paid a great price for ending up in a concentration camp, and lied to the Nazis when she was asked whether she was hiding anybody. And this becomes a distraction, and we're, I'm, I've actually been challenged with that. And it also comes, there's another distraction that I want to deal with. It comes in many forms, but I want to tell you one that actually was challenged to me after preaching on this topic probably 15 years ago. Somebody actually came up to me after the service and said, well, what do I do if I have a dear friend or someone I really care about who has gotten a new haircut that I don't like, and they ask me, do I like it? I wanted to scream, get real. <laughs> I didn't. But we're missing the forest through the trees. If we are reading this and letting ourselves get pulled off as to whether or not it's okay to lie to protect another human being's life, a person we happen don't know, a person who's actually might, and doing so might actually cost us our lives, or whether or not to tell the friend they like their hair, I think we're missing the point. Just a comment on the whole hair thing. If you ask me my opinion, my opinion doesn't matter anyway. So I'm going to tell you, why am I somebody you should base your opinion on? But this is just a, yeah, no, seriously, you don't. So when I tell you I like it, I really do anyway. So. But if we get distracted by that, we're missing the trees through the forest. And quite honestly, we're deflecting because that's not what Jesus is aiming at and it is not what he is concerned about. The Mishnah bobbing and weaving had nothing to do with writing escape clauses so that people could hide other human beings from being executed. The Mishnah had nothing to do with writing laws so that kindness would be protected, so that hearts wouldn't be hurt by, by, by insensitive comments. The Mishnah was written for one purpose, to allow men and women to have options, to keep controls of outcomes. That's what it was written about. And that is why I want disclaimers, addendums, and provisos in my yes and no. That is why I want to be able to stand on a crack when I say something to you. Because I want to be able to bail out if the cost becomes too heavy, if it costs me something, or something that I am worried about. I am not tempted to lie about hiding a human being. I am tempted I am tempted not to sustain a life, but to sustain a bank account. I am tempted not to hide other people, but to hide my sins. I am tempted not to stop injustice. I lie to stop an outcome that I don't like. I am tempted to lie not to protect a stranger I don't know, but to protect someone I know very well, me. Can we go even deeper? Good, thank you, Natasha. <laughs> we have to go deeper. How do we lie? I'll stay with me because I know you guys don't do this. 
but I lie by posturing. Posturing is that I present to you what I want you to know about me because I want to shape your opinion about me. And that causes me to share some things and keep some things back. And I hide a lot of things and I reshape things so that I can impact how you think about me. And these are one of the things to do. We must, we, why do we do this? Why do we do this? It is self-protection and it is a form of an idol and we have to address it. Because I am certain that Jesus was addressing all these things. Why, why would Jesus be so intent? Why would Jesus be so purposeful about addressing this rule and be so strict in the strength of this command? One of the answers put forth by our Christians and brothers and sisters, one of the answers put forth by our Christian brothers and sisters is that Jesus is encouraging us to be moral. That our greatest testimony to Jesus is our morality. That we are to be people known for our morality. We must live this morality. We must model this morality. We must fight for this morality. And the belief is that it is our morality that speaks loudest testimony to who we are and to our faith. An entire movement was created, and again, I'll date myself, in 1979, and it was called the Moral Majority. An entire Christian movement launched, and they named it and titled it themselves and called themselves the Moral Majority. And it grew for a couple of years to millions of members with lots of dollars. And the goal of the followers of these, this group was to be known as the moral majority. Get angry less than others get angry. Get divorced less than others get divorced. Lie less than others lie. Give more than others give. Go out there and be, act, guard, and proclaim that Christians are the moral majority. I have no malice or judgment of these brothers and sisters. I believe that the intentions were all good and I am certain that there is some of this movement to commend. But even very good intentions can miss the mark of the heart of Jesus and I believe with all my heart this one did. The movement was founded in 1979, built, by members, or built in members and monies for a few years. Eventually, it started to die out fairly quickly, and after 10 years, it was disbanded. The leader put a good spin on the disbanding, and he said this statement, our goal has been achieved. The religious right is solidly in place, and religious conservatives in America are now in for the duration. And we can now look and see the impact of that. It didn't last, did it? And all I want to say is that I think it's obvious that labeling ourselves as the moral majority, the goal of being the moral majority didn't have the impact that was intended. And I think that's because Jesus' words were never intended to increase our morality. They weren't given to us to birth and guide a more moral people. 
He gave us these commands. They weren't to not be angry. The command, don't be angry, to honor covenant marriage, to have your yes be yes. And all his teachings on the Sermon on the Mount were not about morality. They were about simplifying the rules. They were not about simplifying the rules so that we could modify our behavior. It doesn't work. It never has worked. And it wasn't his goal. The lies are what is seen above the water and what must be addressed is what is below the water. And that's what Jesus was aiming at with these words. He was pointing out the simple hard truth that all lies, no matter what they are, if you follow their trail back, is an attempt for our control and it's actually us starting to play God. Yeah, that's what he was aiming at. It starts to guide outcomes into the outcomes that we see and does not trust God for, their, for the outcomes he wants to do. And that leads to destruction and eventually it leads to death. That's what Jesus is trying to protect us from. Not guiding more morality, but a warning. Don't try being your own God. It leads to death. It may only be for a moment. It may only be for a situation. God, just for this deal, and then I'm going to put you back on the throne. But any step on that throne and off throne is dangerous, and Jesus is saying, don't do it. Let me try to illustrate this. A friend of mine, how the world and how our minds work. A friend of mine who knew I was a Christian was negotiating a contract in business and he called me and he said, hey, he didn't have a faith. Um, and he called me and he said, but I would like to know, what does God think of this? Which I thought was pretty interesting. So he said, here's the deal, Steve. I'm negotiating a contract and I'm going, about to go into this discussion. And he said, and there are certain things they don't need to know. If I tell them these things, it will distract them. They're not important, and they don't ultimately impact anything we're going to do together. And I know that. So I don't want to muddy the waters by telling them some of this stuff. What does God think of that? And I shared with him. I said, so you're keeping it from them because you've made the decision it's not important. You've made the decision, it won't impact their decision. You've made the decision, it will confuse things. And he said, yes, I know. And I said, okay, say his name was Joe. I said, Joe, you and I have a contract. He goes, right. I said, we're gonna be renegotiating in about nine months. He goes, yeah. I go, you okay with me not telling you some stuff that I don't think you need to know? You okay for me holding back stuff that I think will just muddy the waters? You okay for me to decide for you what you need to know and what you're not? And his answer was a quick no. And I got to tell you, I was pretty proud of my answer. <laughs> Feeling really good about that one. Until that whisper that is always good, but you don't always want to hear. Steve, you do that. And upon a further examination, I realized God was right. <laughs> I do. It's in little things sometimes 
It's in little things, little pieces and parts left out of a conversation or inquiries in my business or arguments, discussions with Linda in the way I present myself to you publicly so that how you will think of me. All of those are me saying to God, I need to be God just for about 10 minutes here. And the way that it's justified is, certainly you don't need for me to lose this $10,000. That's not, so we'll take care of that then. Because I know, I know you, and we're playing God. And that's what is so treacherous about this. And that is why Jesus makes this simple, strong, clear statement. Yes, yes, or no, no. It's that simple. And that's not easy, is it? But it's that simple. And then he adds this. Anything beyond that is of evil. He says this, I believe, because, again, when we look at Genesis 3, we know that the second we try to start being our own gods, we are literally beginning to dance with the devil. And that doesn't just lead to destruction. That leads to death. And Jesus knows us. Because Jesus warns us about this in John 8, 44. He says, you are the father of the devil, talking to some um, teachers. You want to do the same desire as your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a deceiver. He's described as a liar. He's a schemer. He deceives you and he won't stop with just hurting you. He will use whatever you give him in an entryway to eventually kill you. And that's what deception is. It's entering into his playground. That's his world. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 stay in mine. Do you feel the strength of this? And he's saying to us, if we play there, we'll get crushed. Because his goal is destroy you as a child of God and destroy you as an image bearer of God. That's what he hates about you. I know that sounds heavy, but it's simply true, and I can testify to this truth because I've had to repent and return in the past, and I'm having to repent and return right now as I stand before you. For decades, I have carried a strong yes and a strong no, and I believe that anybody that would have talked to me would have believed and testified to that about me. That if I said something, I would do it, and I could trust my yes, and you could trust my no. Until recently. About a year, something entered it, about a year ago, my yes started to get a little bit blurry, and my no started to get a little fuzzy in an area of my life. And I want to say to you, I really wondered whether or not I should share that, because here was my concern. I don't care about judgment. I'm not worried about that. I don't care about my reputation. If I've ever led you to believe I got all the answers, I don't. I worried about sharing because I was worried you might get distracted by trying to figure out what is mine and miss, miss what God may have for you. So I'm going to ask you, please, put aside the guessing of what mine might be 
and listen to the invitation that Jesus has and something that might be for you. About a year ago, the lines of yes and no got blurry in one particular area of my life. There was actually some fairly good reasons for that confusion, but it didn't stop the damage. Why? Why would there still be damage if there might even be good reasons for the fuzziness, for the lack of clarity? This is exactly what we're talking about. You see, if Jesus were just preaching about morality, then if you had a good reason, then the damage wouldn't come. But Jesus is not teaching about morality. He's warning us about death. Reasons or not, lies, confusion, or even blurry lines begin to separate us from him. Let me say that again. Lies, blurriness, confusion begin to separate us from him. That is what he is worried about. And that is what happened in my case. At first, fuzziness just creates confusion. A lot of conversations back and forth that just don't make sense like they used to. And then it penetrates into really a big doubt, and you can see it, and then eventually mistrust. And eventually, I looked in my wife's eyes, and I saw something I had never seen before in 40 years. I saw that she was looking at me and not sure of what I was seeing. And I realized destruction was happening. Death would follow in one form or another. I share this I do not share this for you to be concerned about Lynn and I. Lynn and I can both say we're good and we're actually really good. I share this to testify to the power and promises of Jesus' warnings in this passage. When Jesus said no game playing, just yes and no, anything more is of the devil. He was urging, he was not urging us to follow the rules. He was urging us to walk and stay in our identity. We are to tell the truth because we are sons and daughters of truth. Did you, let me say that again. We are to tell the truth because we are sons and daughters of truth. Our new nature, our purpose, the worship team can come up whenever you guys are ready. Our new nature, our purpose, our image bearing and promise our future, all are rooted and grounded in Jesus. And Jesus is not a teacher of the truth. Jesus is truth. There's a big difference. Jesus is not a teacher of a moral law. He is not a teacher of truth. He is truth. When Jesus is challenging our lies, our deception, and our posturing, he's not teaching a group of people to be more truthful than others. He is calling us to be in relationship with truth itself. That's the glorious invitation that is in front of us. That is what he's inviting when he's announcing his kingdom. Stay in relationship with truth itself. When Jesus is challenging our lies 
It's all about keeping us in truth. According to the scriptures, Jesus was brought forth by truth and is grace and truth. He is the truth that sets us free. He is the truth that leads us into all truth in all things. He is the truth and the life. And he is Jesus. It is he who sanctifies us in the truth. He defers to no one, the scriptures tell us, in truth because he is in total unity with the God of truth. That is our inheritance. That is our lifeblood. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that better than being encouraged into following rules? There's a powerful invitation here. When he was urging us simply yes, yes, and no, no, he was inviting us to be united with him. Our world, it's literally dying for lack of truth. I've been following a man who by accident was thrust in as a social commentator. I'm intrigued with him because of his wisdom and his honesty. I don't know if he's a Christian, but I can tell you very soon he'll be giving his life to Jesus because of what he's seeing and recognizing. He was asked about truth in the world, and he said this, He said, there must be truth, and I believe there is, and that we can have a relationship with truth. And he said, what else would you want but a relationship with truth? What could be better than a relationship with truth? I started crying. I'm going, I don't even know if this guy knows Jesus, but I'm like, that is one of the strongest testimonies of Jesus I've ever heard. He went on. It is truth that makes us better than we can ever be. Because we must be better than we can be. Because our best isn't nearly good enough. It is truth that connects us, this is him speaking, to our divine nature. And it is truth that will redeem society and the redemption of society begins with the redemption of the individual. And he said, opening up ourselves to the truth can be painful, painful. Because the truth burns off everything about us that is not worthy. And sometimes that's a lot. But he said, but the alternative is death. I was like, amen, brother. We know the truth. And he has a name. And his name is Jesus. Jesus stands on the side of a mountain, delivers a message, and invites us into a glorious kingdom, his kingdom. We are honored to carry that kingdom, not in our heads, but in our hearts. He sends us out as salt and light, not to be salt and light by lying less, not to be salt and light by acting less angry, not to be salt and light by our marriage divorce rate, That's not what it is. It is to be salt and light. We are salt and light because we are united with the truth. And in being united with the truth, we become the aroma of truth, the aroma of Jesus to a dying world. We are the fragrance of Christ even when we're not saying a word because 
we carry the truth in us and we testify to the reality of truth. When you boil it all down, Jesus' command to say yes, yes, no, no, his command to not be angry, his commands to honor the covenant of marriage in terms of how we would look at divorce, all those commands eventually are saying the same thing that Jesus is always saying. Come to me and stay with me. Let's stand together. We have a time always our prayer team's going to come forward and it's a time to respond to God. It is not necessarily a time to respond to the message, although it could be. It's just a time to respond to God. We want to build this ministry because it's just prayer. It's not counseling. And who of us doesn't need prayer? So as our prayer team comes forward, would you consider as I pray, whether you want to come forward in anything in your life and just take it to the throne. You won't get asked a bunch of questions, but you will get prayer. And we all need that. So let me pray for us. And then as the worship song's praying, please come forward for prayer if you need it. Lord, I thank you for these words. I thank you for the strength of these words. I thank you more for the heart of these words. I thank you for your deep, deep concern of our connection with you. I thank you for the reality that anything less than a connection with you will fail us. And that's why you have these strong, strong urging, strong, strong words, strong, strong commands, all at the bottom line saying, come to me and stay with me. And so, Lord, for today, would we come forward and pray? If there's anything that has divided us from you, that is pulling us from you, or that we need to ask to help bring us back to you, God, please give us the courage to step forward now to, and to, name, to be able to be prayed for this. In Jesus' name, we give thanks and praise. Amen.